You're listening to the Movie Crew Podcast. Tonight, we're talking with filmmaker Kern Saxton about his first feature, Sushi Girl, what he has coming up next, and film piracy. Our dreams, they feel real while we're in them, right? It's only when we wake up that we realize something is actually strange. The middle children of history, man. No purpose, no place. We have no great war. No great depression. Coming to get you, Barbara. We're on a mission from God. All right, sweethearts, you heard the man. Pull him out. Come on, let's have him. I will show you where I have made my home while preparing to bring justice. Then I will break you. Our great war is a spiritual war. Our great depression is our lives. Welcome to podcast. I'm Brian. With me tonight, Jeremy Benson. Yeah, hello. And we have also special guest, writer, director, producer, and editor, Kern Saxton. Hello. Hey, man. Thanks for coming on the show today. Um, now, you write, you direct, you produce, and you also edit. Now, I do it all. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you've been doing a lot of editing now here lately, I've seen. I do a lot of trailers uh, on the side, and I've started doing um, other features as well. I'm cutting a friend of mine's movie. I'm actually producing as well uh, this year called Mope, um, which is about this sort of fringe porn actor who went nuts with a samurai sword back in 2010. It's a true story. Um, and yeah, and uh, and so I uh, helped him get that set up at a company called Entertainment One, and uh, we're shooting it. Um, we should be shooting it in a couple months, actually. We're casting right now. So that's exciting. But uh, yeah, I um, you know I, I'm I'm more of a writer director, but I really enjoy editing, and um, I feel like part of being a director is you know being an editor. I think it's really important to have those skills, and I think being a good editor helps you become a better director because it helps you figure out what you need and what you don't need, um, so that you are sure that you have all your coverage that you need to tell the story when you're on set. Just kind of streamlines everything. Now, do you feel that way about producing as well? Producing, uh, it's a necessary thing, but it's I think it's less interesting to me than than you know getting in there and doing the nitty gritty. Um, you know, creative producing is one thing; it's different from you know physical producing, which is a lot of paperwork negotiations and you know running a business essentially. Um, I'm a little bit better with the creative stuff. You know, I like to work with actors on set. I like to mess around with the cameras. Um, you know, and I like to put everything together. You know, I like to tell stories. Producing is sort of like um, something that needs to happen in order for that to to be. So it's it's sort of one of those things that you know a lot of people I think when they're young they think I'm going to go be uh, a big movie director and they don't stop to think about all the other things that need to happen for that to to actually work. Right. Um, so. And the, and the other problem with making movies, as I'm sure you guys have experienced and seen other filmmakers kind of go into detail in, in, in certain films of theirs, is that, you know, if you, if you aren't the power on set, then you 
um, you could find yourself butting heads with the person who's writing the checks and that kind of forces your hand. So being a producer on your projects kind of helps ensure that you're going to have a say in, you know, what you're doing. Cause otherwise, you know, the weird thing about directing is it's such a, it can be such a personal, uh, a personal venture, but at the same time, there are a lot of directors who they don't write and they don't produce and they are just hired hands essentially. And, you know, they kind of have to come in and make the story their own and, you know, they can be let go and they can be removed in the editing room. And, you know, I just, I feel like those movies maybe are not as personal as someone who, who writes, directs and, and also, you know, can edit and produce their own movies. I don't know. For me, it's much more when I've, when I've written a script or, and then going in to direct it, it's much more of like, I know what I want to do with this. Why don't we do this? Or why don't we change this? It's always like, no, you, you're messing with the big picture here. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's it's a double-edged sword because sometimes they're right and sometimes, you know, like the director maybe can't see that because they're in love with an idea or something that at the end of the day might not work, you know, when you're in the editing room. I mean, I think that's – but that's another sort of case is like why you should be good at editing because you'll know, you know where the where the fat is, what to, what to get rid of. But, you know, yes, yeah, sometimes it does come down to like those just like someone has a wild hair up their ass and goes, oh, I think it should be like this. You know, that was the old adage. Everybody likes the soup better once they've pissed in it. So it's like, you know, sometimes you'll just those are fights that you just have to have. And I think, you know, being being as entrenched in the project as you can be, I think, you know, helps cover you in those events. Um, because you do. I mean, that's the other thing that like you can't just go be a dictator. You have to be a diplomat. Right. Um, you have to make sure that everyone, you know, yes, it is about your vision. Yes, it is about the story that, that, that you've originated. You, you still have to, it still has to make economic sense. It still has to make, um, you know, logical sense. And so, you know, there are a lot of times where you will find yourself, you know, having to sort of bridge the gap between several different worlds and make sure that everyone kind of at least feels heard. And feels like, you know, I, I like to, to include people a lot to, so that, you know, they feel like they're part of the process as well. Because if they think that it's just all about you, all about you, um, and it really isn't, and it's about the story. But I feel like some people can get carried away and, and they, they kind of lose the, the collaborative picture. Yeah, I see you, uh, you work with uh, quite a lot of the same people. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, you work, work with people that, you know, you get along with and that, you can you're on the same creative wavelength with but you know i'm 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 not opposed to working with new people but i I just i want to make sure that because it's such a personal you know it's a personal medium telling these stories you just you kind of like if someone does you wrong on them it really kind of hurts you know like it's it can really get tender so you want to make sure that that you got people that you trust on your side now when you started uh the process for getting sushi girl made original script were originally planning to shoot that on the weekends is that correct it was sort of a reaction to another project that we had being developed in oh geez like 2008 which is actually it was a it was supposed to be like a feature expansion of a zombie short that we did that won some myspace contest i'll tell you how long ago that was dead um, living through chemistry yeah that's the one that's on and, the uh, diary of the dead dvd i've i've seen that yeah, it's a it's a nice little three minute thing. <laughs> yeah, I really um, enjoyed that. Cool. Yeah. Well, we 
you know, we have a script for it. Um, I think it needs some massive rewrites now. It's one of those things where we, we had it in development and we couldn't get it going because it was going to be too expensive. And we sat down and we said, uh, well, what's going to be a, uh, you know, what's going to be a cheaper way to make a movie? Like, what's going to be, you know, how, how, do we, how do we actually get something done? Because it's, it's really tough out there. Destin said, yeah, let's do it in one, one room. And I was like, oh, that's, I mean, that's, you know, its own double-edged sword, you know. Um, so we kind of, you know, beat the story out. And um, I started showing it around to a few people. And that's how um, I got Neil and Cern attached to come produce it with me. Before that all happened, though, it was going to be like a $15,000 movie. And I took it to my friend Neil at Davis Film. And he said, you know, this could be a real movie. He said, don't don't waste this opportunity just by kind of like, you know, trying to be indie for the sake of being indie and, you know, don't, don't just try to make a movie for the sake of making a movie. Like this is, this is good. Let's make this, let's make this for real. So um, that's when it became like still a low budget movie, but we were going to try and get it done for like a hundred grand and we were going to try and get some real actors. In it. And then that's kind of, spiraled out of control and, and we ended up shooting for about $350,000 with Mark Hamill. So Mark know, Hamill it, and Tony Todd and oh my yeah, gosh, that's a great uh, cast. Yeah, it was, it was a great experience, but it was one of those things where it was like, you just kind of had to, um, you know, keep your eye on the prize and say, you know, am I making a good decision for the movie? And, um, and I think ultimately, yeah, we did. We made the best decisions we could for the movie you know, it worked out the way it, it did. I, I I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> oh no, no. I mean, dude, no, that that does. I mean, you brought up earlier too, like the whole challenge of shooting in a one room. Like, were you guys very conscious of that? Like, in terms of blocking and camera movement of putting oh yeah, I mean, people's attention I had to, in certain areas. Well, it helps to have a really big room. So the first big thing that changed was I. You know, we were going to do this with our friends on the weekends. And we were going to do it at some like art gallery that we had a, a friend friendly connection with that we could kind of make look like, you know, it was going to look like a set from 2001: A Space Odyssey. You know, it was be very modern and kind of boring, and and um, not that the sets in 2001 are boring. It's just like it was going to be very simple. Yeah, I know, kind of sterile. Um, yeah, and so you know, once I gave it to Neil Fisher, he said, "I have a perfect location for this," and I said, "Cool, where?" And he says, "This is old." Um, dilapidated restaurant that's on the Universal Studios property. I know a guy there. He can get us a good deal. Yada, yada, yada. So we go see this place, and it it's this, like, palace that no one ever notices. It was, like, um, kind of a weird analogy, but um, you, you guys remember The Shadow, the movie with um, Alec, Alec Baldwin? Baldwin? Yeah, yeah. John Lowe. Yeah. yeah, and there's, there's, like, a building in the middle of the city that's that everyone's, like, hypnotized, and they can't, that no one can see it, but it's yeah. there, but it's, like, everyone sees it as empty lot. Well, that's like what this restaurant was. You would drive up the hill up um, to go to the Universal Studios um, City Walk. And if you look to your left, you would see this enormous, beautiful Chinese restaurant, like decked out like it's an actual palace from, you know, the Ming Dynasty or whatever. And it, But it was really this like kind of cheesy theme restaurant in the 70s that had been shut down for like two decades. We learned while taking a tour of it. Uh, for like human rights violations because they were like they were they were apparently like importing workers from china and putting them in beds like uh, bunk beds underneath underneath the the complex what? Which is a very odd story yeah it was very 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 weird um stuff was going on 
so they shut it down and it never reopened so no one ever paid any attention to it it was just like sitting there and it was just this wonderful untapped resource i mean it had been used in movies here and there they shot i think balls of fury shot there and uh like a bunch of csi episodes because it has a bunch of different rooms that could look like a bunch of different things like we shot like the loading dock stuff during the flashbacks that was the back of the restaurant Um, oh okay the the jewelry store that was the back of the restaurant you know like that all you know it was all part of it um so you were making good use of your space there exactly i mean that's also part of the trick you know you get you get a good location that can serve a lot of different um uh, purposes in your story and you and you milk it for all it's worth that's how you keep your budget down but i've I've tried to give that advice to so many young young filmmakers that let it go right over their head well because everybody when they're young they all want to make their epic movies that are in their heads and like 57 locations yeah you know like i really wish i made like uh i went to college at north Carolina school of the arts so i wish you know like looking back i kind of wish i made like a you know, a, a, a zombie movie out in the country or a period piece, you know, something like that for my, my senior year film, because what I made was just like, it was just, I bit off way more than I could chew. And, and so, you know, looking back at it, I was like, Oh, I have so many, so many resources that I had, I had so many resources at my fingertips that it could be really cool, smaller scale thing, but still feel big scale. But I wanted to go for, let's shoot this movie that takes place in a big city kind of thing. And right. And I didn't listen to the faculty when they were like, yeah, how are you going to make a big city in Winston-Salem? It's like this tiny little sleepy town. Like, what are you, <laughs> like, what, what are you, how are you going to do that? You know, I was like, well, we've got a downtown. We'll make it work. But, <laughs> we got buildings know, that have more than two floors. Yeah. We got a building. Yeah, we got a couple, but it wasn't, you know, it just, it just, so it, it just kind of ended up being kind of met. I kind of wish I had used that opportunity more than, than I did, but you know, everyone has to make their own mistakes to really learn. And like, and that's the thing is like, you know, there's so many kids that I've encountered are like asking questions like that. And you just go, you know, like, I know you're not going to listen to what I tell you. Right. You're going to go do it, do it. And you're going to fuck it up on your own. And you're going to figure it out because of you, because of, because you fucked up. Like, I know how arrogant and, and, you know, cocksure these kids are. Because I used to be one, so you know it's cool, fine. But um, tell me about this cast, man. Like working with all these amazing actors, you got you got Jeff Fahey, even just in a, in a role that is like two seconds, and he makes it his own. Man, you got all these good performances in this room of this talent. What I mean, what was that like? After having done it, it was it was a great experience. Um, it's probably not as surreal as maybe it was when we were doing it. Like we we did get really lucky with the cast, and we got we got a really good cast and director. Kind of started the ball rolling. You know, some things happened behind the scenes that pretty much total luck. I mean, we had gotten I think I cast Andy McKenzie first, the guy uh, with the sock. Oh yes, um, and he uh, he and I had done a short webisode uh, like the year before. And um, I said, this guy's a really good actor. I, I want to work with him again. And he had this kind of rough look that we could exaggerate and make him look like really kind of crazy badass uh he was like the first guy we brought on because i knew he could do that and then jimmy duvall was the second guy we brought on that was a friendly connection and we had hired a uh a cast director named zora de hoarder and she had gone out because we had you know a bunch of guys on our list for duke uh she went out and tony todd was like the, one of the first people we went out to and immediately got rejected and his management said, Tony doesn't do movies this cheap. 
they wouldn't even look at it. And so we went on looking for other guys and uh, we read a couple other people. We went out to like another couple people like Bill Duke and Keith David and, you know, like it was just a really, cause at that point we only had a hundred thousand dollars. So people were kind of like, yeah, right. I don't know. Then Tony Todd, um, I get a message from like, uh, our, our cast director calls us one day and she says, uh, so, uh, Tony Todd read it and he's, and he wants to do it. He says he's in. And we were like, he said he wants to have a meeting about it. <laughs> no, no, no. He, he read the script and he really loves it and he's going to do it. He, we have like no money. Is, are you sure he understands that? And they're like, yeah, yeah, no, he, he loves the script. He's going to do it. So that's kind of how, how nice. it worked out. It was like a lightning bolt from God. It's like, all right, cool. Like, this is going to happen now. And because we got Tony, sort of one of the things that convinced Mark to come on board, all the cast assembled and I had another guy who was going to play Crow and another guy who was going to play Fish. We had a cast reading with that group of people and we were about two weeks out from shooting when some of our financing fell out. And Ouch. we were like, $100,000, are you kidding me? Like, oh, we can't, man. We can get this together. And so we shut down production for about a year, and then we oh, man, got everything back scary. up and running. Yeah, well, we went out and hit the pavement looking for money, you know, we, we, and it took about a year to get everything back back in place. And so I started making calls, and the guy who was going to play Crow, like, freaked out on me because he said he was like, I was using his photograph to raise money. And I was like, what, what, what are you talking about? And he said, you have my photo on your website. Um, and I said, you mean my IMDb page? <laughs> <laughs> and he was like yeah and i was like i don't control that like nobody like we don't like anyone can put photos and stuff on there <laughs> and he just didn't listen he wouldn't listen to me and he like hung up on me so i said well i guess we need to get another crow and that's when we had a brainstorm session like emergency brainstorm session this is like maybe like a month before we we're gonna go shoot the thing oh wow for the second for the second time someone threw out um i think my friend dave satev threw out Mark Hamill, he's like a huge Star Wars fan. He threw out Mark Hamill kind of like half as a joke. We all kind of were like, oh, yeah, yeah, right. Luke Skywalker's going to do this movie. Sure, sure thing. And he's like, no, it actually could, could really work. And, I, and I, I thought about it. I said, yeah, you know, he has played the Joker for like 20 years. Yeah. I think he could really bring some character to it. So turns out we had a friend at his agency um, who was working there um, as an assistant. And she helped us get the script to his agent and manager and um but what really did it because he i think was uh kind of put off by the violence at first oh really his, yeah his kids read it and they said um dad this is like this is exactly the type of character work you you're, you you want to do like if you don't take this job you can't ever complain again at the dinner table that you you don't book roles like steve buscemi or malcolm <laughs> mcdowell or or all these other guys you know and so that was kind of like he read it again and said oh I'm the comic relief. <laughs> and that's what convinced him to come on board. So that really kind of dictated a lot of what, you know, what came out in the character. He did a good job. Yeah. He think he knocked it out of the park. Oh man. Look at that. Kids dropping truth bombs on parents. <laughs> it's what they're for, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, they, they put you in your place sometimes. Yeah. Right. I took my 11 year old to see the Revenant. You're 11 year old to see the yeah. Revenant. Wow, How'd that go? That. Oh, she loved it. <laughs> She leaned over at like the front of the movie and she went, it hasn't cut yet. <laughs> <laughs> this is awesome. 
Haven't seen it. Haven't seen it. But baby steps, baby steps. Oh, but you got to see it before it's out of theaters, man. It's, it's something that you need to see on the big screen. I've been telling him. I know, yeah. I know. You know, Star Wars has been sucking up a lot of my theater going time here, guys. All of your theater, theater going time. <laughs> you know, should, it, should it, we give a count? What it, is the count up to? It, it's up to ten. It's up to ten, maybe twelve. You know, maybe twelve. Yeah. Well, I got kids, and they're they're enjoying it. I'm enjoying sharing that experience with them. But all right. Um, oh, dude, b- real quick too, man. Uh, also in the cast, Sonny Chiba, dude. How, that's amazing. <laughs> now. I, I was watching uh, your making of. You have a uh, mint again to the uh, real quick the Blu-ray for oh. Sushi Girl. The sound <laughs> on that is absolutely incredible. If you're oh thanks, Sushi Girl streaming right now on Netflix. But I highly well, recommend uh, the the Blu-ray. Yeah, you gotta get that seven point one DTS HD. Oh man, <laughs> did the rain coming in at the beginning of that just oh the oh uh, man that, yeah that was uh, Monkey Land Audio in Burbank they. Uh, lot of uh really talented guys over there um including the designer and uh the sound mixer and those guys were just they went the extra mile you know they the the movie came in and they were just they you know they'd written up like a whole big long list of of notes of things that they wanted to hear and um i sat down with them and they were just like it was like kids in a candy store kind of thing. And, and I, and I can't remember what the situation is, but we actually made a deal with them where they would actually wire and they would set up 7.1 in their monitoring studio so that we could actually do it in 7.1 because they didn't have oh, at that really? point, they, they only had a five one setup. And so we, through our discussions, we were like, what if we did this? And then ended up doing it in 7.1, which is like totally unnecessary for a chamber piece movie. But I think it just, it was a lot of fun to do. <laughs> And I think obviously it sounds good. So oh yeah, no, the Blu-ray sounds incredible. Sorry, I got got totally derailed. The uh, the making of um, I saw you had a translator with uh, Sonny Chiba. Was yeah, that's our friend Tommy. So Tommy, <laughs> the translator, is a guy that we met at. Um, there is a uh, there was a little crepe shop on uh, Sawtell in uh, Los Angeles. It's like this little Japanese community. And I used to live, you know, a couple minute drive from there. And um, my producer, Surin, and I used to go to this place called Volcano Tea. And right next door was this little crepe shop that was sort of tucked in between. It was like almost half a storefront. And you would walk in there and there would be this billboard that was made by hand. Um, There are these like plastic crepe models that were like, you know, like, fake food and and that sign was hung so low that you couldn't see the guy behind the counter's face you could only see his arms <laughs> and below there was a it was very notorious for for being very um unfriendly um that you would have to go in and you would and you would have to know what you wanted and you would you would you would tell him your order and you would place your money on the counter he would call your name when it was ready then if you didn't know what you wanted and you were like we're dicking around he would like yell at you and and then tell you to put your money down and he would just make you something that he wanted to make you. And so he got this sort of reputation as being the crepe Nazi. So we're out there one night and um, this guy ends up taking a break and he has tea next to us. And so my friend Surin uh, also starts, he starts chatting him up, you know, they're kind of, they're both kind of like, you know, I want to say antisocial, but you know, like introverted for sure. Um, And so they bond together over, over tea and crepes. And he ends up uh, becoming, you know, 
a frequent friend of ours. Turns out he is a Japanese filmmaker studying in, in L.A. And back in Japan, one of the people that he um, you know deals with is Sonny Chiba. He has a close relationship with Sonny Chiba. So it wow. quickly turns into a situation where we're like developing like several Sonny Chiba projects. <laughs> um, you know, so we get the idea to ask Sonny if he would be in, you know, our movie. Cause you know, we had these grand plans to be, you know, we were going to do a bunch of different movies. And, um, and so we said, wouldn't it be fun if we got Sonny Chiba in this movie and asked him and he said, yeah, I'll, I'll come out and be in your movie. All you have to do is buy me a ticket from Tokyo, which was like $7,000, but we were totally all about it. Cause it's like, you get Sonny Chiba in your movie. So yeah. it was kind of a friendly backdoor thing. And yeah, so that's how Sonny Chiba ended up in Sushi Girl. Oh man, what a stroke of luck! It was pretty crazy. And so, and then Tommy was the translator. So that was one of the more colorful moments, I think. My friend Paul actually shot that documentary. Uh, I've been friends with him since high school, and I asked him to do. I wanted to do like an EP. I didn't want to do like an EPK kind of thing. I wanted to do something that was like a fly on the wall, kind of look at what a new production is really like. So that's why. Um, it kind of has a non-standard flow to it. And there's like a lot of, I would say, intimate moments that maybe don't make us look that great. But I think that's what we were kind of going for. It's really odd how the characters, like we're all characters in that piece. Like we're all not necessarily acting, but like there's clearly, you know, it shows both the camaraderie and the frustration, I think, really well of what an indie film is like. Oh, the frustration indeed. Yeah. What the fun. Yeah, no, it was a lot of fun, too. I mean, you know, if you watch the whole thing, it's like at the end of the day, it's all roses and everyone is happy and hugging and stuff. But, you know, I know there's like, you know, there's other movies where that doesn't happen, like Hearts of Darkness, um, you know, like the <laughs> documentary about Apocalypse Now. It's like Francis Ford Coppola with a gun to his temple and you go, yeah, filmmaker is great. <laughs> oh, that poor man in that documentary. Yeah. I know. Man, how did you guys, did you guys have a distributor already lined up or... Did you get the film done and have to show it to some people? I know you guys went to Comic-Con, did some film festivals. Yeah, so we – I think the big mistake we made was we didn't engage a sales rep fast enough. Um, I think we had sort of like the indie naivete where we thought um, we made this thing. Isn't it great? Everyone's going to love it. Um, and we started submitting it to festivals. And I we had like some friends at Sundance. So we had kind of an inside scoop on what was going on there. And we sent it in, and they ultimately rejected it. Um, it was a long battle, apparently. It was one of the last things that they had decided on, apparently, because there was a lot of um, debate going on whether it should be included in the year's stable of movies. And, and they, they ultimately rejected it and said, at least what we had heard was, that it was, quote, to Sundance for Sundance, which <laughs> totally perplexed me. But, yeah, what does um, that so mean? We, yeah, I don't know. So we ended up... Um, we ended up getting a sales agency on board called XYZ, and they had done the raid. I've heard um, they're really good. And yeah, they are. Um, they they do really good work, and they are consistently getting movies in big festivals and making sales to you know really good companies. And the movies that they do seem to have um, a good bit of life in them. Um, and they came to us early, and they were like, "Hey, you know, we really love this movie. We really want to do something." But we were kind of like, well, "I don't know." Like we wanted to hold out for a different sales agency or whatever and it, we just had our heads up our asses and it didn't work out and so we ended up saying like yeah sure but i think by the time we had committed to going with xyz they um didn't have a lot of time to you know seed their people at the festivals and so we ended up 
the old, the big premiere we did we, we did we did one at um, Fantasia, um, which is a really great festival up in Canada, oh, yeah. which is it, coming to its own uh, the last couple of years as a as a genre festival, and that was a fantastic experience, and I would totally go there again, and highly recommend anyone with you know horror thriller you know anything that's not like an out and out art film. Uh, to send to Fantasia because they are a very energetic group of people, the programmers and the audiences. That was like one of the loudest screenings I've ever attended in my life. And Michael Bean really knows how to rile those guys up. Oh, man. <laughs> I bet he does. Yeah. Everybody likes Hicks, man. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, so, yeah, and then we did a preview, like sneak screening at Comic-Con because we didn't want to rob fantasia of the world premiere so we did like a like a low-key you know like 200 people thing at comic-con which wasn't very well publicized um but we did you know we had done like a, po- a panel there the year before and had like a full room and you know a lot of people were excited about it so i think we got a lot of good mileage out of that but uh, i think we could have done a lot more um in terms of the festival circuit and i think we should have for young people you know, who have just finished their first film and don't really know what to do with it. I, I would look at engaging a sales agent soon in the process so that, you know, you can hit all the right deadlines. Cause there's like a, it's kind of like a waterfall, uh, the festival circuit, like you go to one and then another one will pick it up and another one will pick it up. You know, there are a lot of little festivals that are great, but they won't really help you get a sale. You know what I mean? Yeah. Now did that company also help you? You said X, Y, Oh. XYZ. Yeah, they we did a we ended up doing a uh, a big um distributor screening at the DGA. We had a couple offers from a couple big distributors. Two of the bigger distributors we were talking with were uh MCA or well it wouldn't be NCA, it would be Universal was looking at it and uh Sony Pictures Classics. Actually, we screened it for Sony Pictures Classics in New York. And after the screening when the lights came up, they said that was great. So where was Mark Hamill? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, about that. <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, I think that's sort of, it was kind of hard to market it that way because Mark looks so different than anything else. Um, so, yeah, I'm, you know, like, I, there's nothing we really do about that because that's what the movie is, you know? It's like, that's what, like, if you change that, you radically change the character and, like, the whole point of it was to, like, have Mark do something that wasn't like anything he had done before, but it would have been easier to sell if maybe he was more recognizable as, you know, some of his other big characters that he's played. Put him in a Jedi robe and yeah, there was a really funny fan art poster on the internet that mashed up the sushi girl poster and the star Wars episode seven poster. That was quite funny. I saw that. That that was pretty good. That was pretty good. (laughs) Yeah. Who did that poster, by the way? That is amazing. The uh, the seventies looking one. Yeah, the box um, on the Blu-ray. Yeah, I did the. I I laid it out in Photoshop, and then we got our conceptual artist Mantos Lapas, uh, Greek. He uh, actually was working remotely while he was still in Greece uh, on that project, and um, he ended up turning my Photoshop collage into a fully functional painting that's sort of like you know reminiscent of those. Uh, the old way they used to do posters, and um, I thought it was really, really fucking cool. So, oh, man, uh, that's amazing. Yeah, I thanks. really like it. So well done. They don't, man. Posters so important, so important. I know. 
just I don't know. make them like they used to. They, they don't. don't. It's all a bunch of floating heads. Oh, know? right. So, Photoshop uh, destroyed it, kind of. Yeah, totally. So your your film's out, and you know this is something we've actually never addressed on this podcast ever before. We're going to talk about it. Piracy. Uh oh, you said the big word. Movie piracy, <laughs> and like this is Stomach's so turning just hearing. It. <laughs> this is such a good like. <laughs> way to talk about this because you can actually your film was re- released out on blu-ray uh digitally as well on itunes and netflix and everything mm-hmm. like that and you guys have had some problems with piracy yeah well you know the pirates had my blu-ray before i even got to see a copy of it there was a guy who posted a torrent literally like like a matter of weeks before i actually had physically gotten a copy to review myself so i don't know where that comes from you know like i don't know where that leak was but it clearly it oh, clearly wow. happened so it that's something that's leaked that's not even the finished movie no it was the finished movie it, it was the it was like um a digital it was probably a finished the disc no he had a photograph of the actual retail blu-ray but it was like weeks before it was released and it was and it was it was a it was actually weeks before i actually even got my own copy you know, we had been working on it, and we had—I'd been doing work with the with Magnolia to get the discs, you know, the menus and everything put together, and I, I delivering the extra features and stuff. And but as soon as it was done and it was pressed, I, the I didn't get a copy of it before it was before it hit the internet, and it was very bizarre because I I you know I would like to know how that happened. Oh, that has got to be the most frustrating thing in the world, man. Yeah, yeah it was it, really frustrating. It's pretty frustrating. Yeah, well, it was more frustrating seeing the one that was the this ripped off iTunes and and how that was like literally being seated on uh, the same rate as The Hobbit at the time, and we were all because you get it's like a weird situation to be in because you've made this movie and you see how popular it is on the the torrents and you go oh, shit like this might be a real thing like people people seem to really be wanting this and this amount of interest is kind of crazy. Like maybe that means we're going to make more money, you know, because everyone's excited about this. And it turned out like, no, it was really like they a small group of people free. who literally just, they stole it and they didn't pay for it. And that's how it ended up. But if everyone had paid like a dollar that downloaded it off the torrent sites, if everyone just paid like a dollar, we would have been in, we would have made 10 times our money. Right. You know, it's like, it's insane. So like, it's, it's a very, it's a complicated problem, and I feel like a lot of people that do it, you know, the torrent, they don't realize the, the situation that they're contributing to, um, especially how the piracy affects, this, in particular, independent filmmakers. Right. But it also has um, another effect on the industry as a whole in that it makes the studio-level projects, it makes them want to take fewer risks. And so the whole thing we've been seeing where studios are sort of consolidating their money on bigger tent poles, you know, they're more franchise films, more sequels and less smaller character driven stuff that is maybe not as tried and true, you know, like, like the nineties were great, you know, with movies like fight club at the studio level, which today would never be made. You know, oh, yeah, I mean? that like, would never, it's just, right. it's such a, it's such a different movie that no one would want to take a chance on it. And, um, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that piracy has been sort of eating away their bottom line. And, you know, yeah, like they keep they keep jacking up ticket prices kind of to cover for that. So a lot of people that complain about how expensive movies have gotten is like, well, they've gotten 
a lot more expensive because they haven't been making as much money. The, if you look at the numbers, the viewership as a, as a, you know in, in total is down, but the box office keeps going going up because now it costs fifteen to twenty dollars to see a movie someplace. You know, like I went to an AMC to see The Revenant, and it was a twenty dollar ticket to see it in their like deluxe theater. You know, it was just like, yeah, that's crazy. Like I could buy a Blu-ray for that much. Our last movie came out like about three weeks before it hit. One of the guys that worked on the movie noticed that people were putting reviews up on IMDb. Yeah, and you go, and, how do you get those reviews? And he went on and was like, <laughs> you guys stole the movie. They argued about it on IMDb, but he got them, basically was able to track down where it was. And then we we informed our lawyer, because we were, we were downloaded as much as the Expendables, and we informed our lawyer, and all they did was just moved it to a different site after he sent them a letter. Yeah, it's well, it's hard to it's, it's hard, hard to, to combat. Yeah. You know, like you can't like in a lot of ways, Pandora's box has been opened, and there's really no going back. But I think part of the big issue is that there's this running uh, argument over whether or not it's stealing. No, it's um, stealing. Because, yeah, but people, you know, you talk to people on these forums, and they they're like, oh, it's not stealing. Like, I'm not actually physically taking anything from them, and I have to go through this long explanation where I I basically describe dilution the more that you copy something and put it out there the less it's worth and so it's it's causing this big ripple effect that you know it's like you're not like you're taking candy bar from a from a a convenience store but you are irreparably damaging a movie's ability to to generate profit and a lot of them you know they sort of slip back into the argument of like oh well these movie stars and directors they're not hurting yeah they make plenty of money yeah um, I actually had an argument with a guy about the MPAA, and he was going on and on and on about how the MPAA does this and the MPAA does that, and blah, 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 blah. And I said, you realize the MPAA isn't the guy who's hurting because the MPAA makes its money off the top of every production. Like, they're not going to hurt because they don't come – like, their stake doesn't come out of the profits. The people you're killing are the people that are that re- that rely on the profits to actually see any money because they're making movies for so low that they can't afford to pay themselves during the shoot. Yeah, I mean I- – I just don't understand it, too, from consumer level. The only way you can vote for a movie to get made in Hollywood is by paying money to go see it. You know, vote with your dollar. Like, this is the content that I want. If you're just stealing it, nobody's paying for that. If it's not making any money, Hollywood's not going to make that kind of film anymore. Right. Right. But they don't get that. And the the other thing is that they don't – they probably don't even realize that's how it works. Kind of a lot of people these days have grown up in a world where – it's the norm. Right. Um, you know, like it's so That's easy really for sad. anyone to do, you know? Yeah. It's really sad because I feel like I'm of the last sort of generation that kind of grew up in the analog world. And, and we kind of, we know the value of, of each an individual title, you know, as, because we saw it on the store shelves, you know, we saw it in the video store, like our, like as much as like the guys like Tarantino and Ari, as they grew up in the movie theater, we grew up in the video store. Yeah. And, um, and so, well, Tarantino grew up in a video store too, but you, you get my point. You know, like yeah. there was there, there was a physical thing that you know that that you had to place your money on if you wanted to check it out, and yeah, it was only a couple bucks, but you didn't have the option to go turn something else on immediately if if it was boring or if it was horrible. You kind of had to stick it out. It's sort of a different way of, of of experiencing the world, and now it's all bits and bytes flying right to your phone. I feel like in general attention spans are shorter, but at the same time, like they haven't been taught the dot the the value of it. You know, they kind of just you know assuming that that's it you know that's the them. way it is, and it's okay to just 
try before you buy. And oh, I had one guy try know, to convince me that because I called him stealing our movie, and he tried to convince me that it was a good thing because he told other oh, people yeah. that he liked the movie. I'm yeah. like, but yeah, but oh, you're, you're just telling other people to go get it for free. Like you're yeah, not helping exactly. me at all here. Yeah, th- I heard that argument a million times too. People being like, "Well, you realize like we're helping you get your the word out about your movie to an audience that would never have seen your movie." Or, you know, blah blah blah. I also got the argument about, "Oh, well, I'm too poor to afford to see it. Um, it's not available in my country." All these things, and the availability is an issue. But like, movies are a cheap, a cheap thing. They're cheap to rent. They're cheap to buy. I mean, you know, if you if you can't afford to go to the movies or if you can't afford to rent a DVD or rent a, a, a stream, right? For you've got bigger problems that you should be focusing on than movie. That's a very, very valid point. It, and it, it really pisses me off that people who also use that argument, they spend thousands upon thousands of dollars on their computing and home theater equipment. It doesn't make sense to me that they would they'd be so willing to spend that much money to, to buy the electronics, to view the things. They feel that it's they're right then to download the stuff for free in order to, to enjoy that thing that they just paid for. It's, it's maddening. Kind of crazy. Yeah, it's really maddening because I think we've come into the business at, a, at the one, one of the most difficult times to make it because it's so demoralizing when you don't, when you don't make enough money to pay back your investors. And, and yet people are, are raving about it online um, you know, on the torrent sites and stuff going like, oh, yeah, it's a good movie. You should check it out. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, because it's like, guys, praise doesn't pay my bills, you know? Like, I'm really happy that you like it, but, like, you're really screwing me here by not paying for it. At least, like, mail me a dollar or something. Yeah, well, I tried. I tried. I went online and I started confronting these people on the torrent sites and leaving nice notes and saying, like, hey, you know, this is how it is. I'm not, you know, David Fincher or Steven Spielberg, you know, I'm just a guy trying to get a, you know, get ahead here. And so are all my friends that made this movie with me, and we really enjoyed making it. We really are glad that you're enjoying it, but we ask that you, you know, if you enjoy it, please help support us. And we even started like a PayPal account and stuff, and I think <laughs> we got something like 300 bucks. It was like virtually nothing. So it's like some people have to take, take it more seriously than they do, and I think they don't because they don't see the repercussions from it themselves it's weird like you talk to musicians you talk to filmmakers and they'll they'll all align with you most of them i'm there are some who still kind of you know they they do have a more pragmatic view of it and they think maybe uh, i can harness this free publicity or whatever but you know you're talking about bands like radiohead and nine inch nails you don't need to make money right. you know like they yeah they've already made away it. an album yeah, for they're free. giving their newest yeah. album away because they're going to sell out stadiums Exactly. And that's where they make their money. And it's the same thing. Like people use that argument too, going like, oh, well, you could use this to, you know, you could take the movie on tour. And I'm sitting there going like, do you understand like how different it is? Like, I'm not Louis C.K. Like, I can't just go, oh, I'm going to go on tour, you know, and, and right. sell T-shirts, you know, like I have to get the cast together. And a lot of these guys, you know, it's, it costs money to ferry them around the country. Darren Lynn Bowsman was doing that with um, Repo the Genetic Opera that way. And he did... The Devil's Carnival that way. And um, he made a decent amount of money, but it was like literally him and his guys in a van for like months, you know, going around to these different circuits. And he also had a much larger, you know, larger fan base built up at that point. And from the um, Saw movies. That we, yeah. And there's something we had just, well, and like, you know, because he'd been, I guess from Repo, he he'd sort of created this sort of mini Rocky Horror Picture Show kind of, kind of cult of people that were, that would come out. We did a couple things 
we did a tour in Australia uh, as part of a film festival and a Comic-Con tour down there wasn't a cheap thing to do. So it just, it didn't, it wouldn't have made financial sense for us, whereas it did for, for Darren. Well, yeah, I mean, you um, end up paying more for, to get the actors to come to the screening. <laughs> well, it was, it was just one of those things where it's like you add up lodging and travel right. and then how some of these guys, you know, because they're, they're bigger stars that have been in the industry a while. Like yeah. it couldn't, you can just, you can just lump them in with three other guys in a hotel room. There was a, it was like certain things they're going to be looking for. Yeah, dude, I don't know, man. I could see a reality TV show with Mark Hamill, Tony Todd, and Michael Bean, like all oh. in the same hotel room. You know, we'll just that provide alcohol. You know, I, that's actually a great idea. <laughs> I actually, I actually have a novelist friend that I saw tweeting on. Um, apparently, his book's going to be published in like March, and it's already leaked online. Oh, the publishing industry is already screwed. I mean, like you, you look at what's going on there, especially the divorce from paper. You, you know, what's weird is that I think like certain kind of books have a little bit more appeal, like the like the Toshin books, like the high end books. They have like a, an appeal that you know digital formats can't equal. But for most everybody else, it's like you know the big the big problem with doing a physical medium is that you have to produce it. You have to have a certain amount of sales to support the production of it. Right. So. So if you can't, you know, guarantee those sales, then you're literally just hemorrhaging money. What's great about the digital marketplace is that it doesn't cost anything to make any any more copies, but as soon as it's out there, someone's going to give it away for free. So it's a giant conundrum, like how do we how do we work around it? And, you know, streaming is streaming is a future that is it could potentially be very bright, but right now it does not really kick much back to the artist, you know, the whole Spotify thing. How's Netflix? I, I hear people, Netflix is a little, it doesn't Netflix do a lot. Is, well, so what's weird about Netflix is that they'll pay $35,000 for an indie movie uh, for three three-year contract to stream it. When you do the math, it's not enough to pay anyone literally anything, you know, like you, you there's really nothing. It's just going into like, that black hole of budget. Yeah, it really, it really is, and um, and a lot of them are done in bulk deals and stuff. So, um, and you need like an aggregator or a distributor to handle that. Like, you know, it's it's wonderful. Hey, my movie's on Netflix. Go go take a look at it. But knowing that, like, I won't, I won't see any of that money. You know, I won't. There's there's no benefit for me if more people see it on on netflix than if they saw it on the internet essentially you know like as part of a torrent like there it's really kind of like the same net result for the filmmaker and at that point you're just sort of talking you know the the best thing you can hope for is to grow your audience and make another movie and and use that audience to drum up interest in the next one you know and then that's and that's but that's like the insulting argument that's made is that oh well this is what you can do now now that i've gracefully given you my my view you know instead of a dollar where right. you could go to an investor and say, hey, we made so much money on this project, let's do another one. And they go, yeah, that'd be wonderful. Instead, you kind of have to start from square one again and find a different set of investors that you haven't burned <laughs> because you haven't made them their money back. You know, So it's this cutting indie filmmakers off at their knees, and I think a lot of people don't get that. The whole streaming thing, that's what it's doing to musicians. Um, when Daft Punk can only make $13,000 each off of um, one of the biggest songs of the year, um, which was Get Lucky, from Spotify, what do you think an indie artist is making? Probably like a fraction of a cent. Oh, man. You know? Yeah, I saw an interview with, um, man, I want to say it was Pearl Jam, talking about you have to tour now or you're not going to make yeah. any money. 
Yeah, and touring is a young man's game, so a lot of these older guys don't want to do it. I was talking to one guy, and his argument was he, that he honestly believed that anybody that made a movie was making a lot of money. Yeah, that's certainly not true. And I was like, <laughs> no, man, because our last movie, the one that before the one we just finished, I think we made it for like twenty or thirty thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. And like we didn't get paid on it. We just were out there working our asses off for to get the movie yeah. done. No I was trying to explain money. that yeah. to him, and he's like, "Dude, there's no way. It's a blockbuster. It's everywhere. You made money." Like, yeah, no, they I just don't get choke it. you. No, I mean, there's some. Um, I read an article that said something about how like the average indie movie, I think, is lucky to gross twenty five thousand dollars because there's so many of them now and they're made so cheap and that's really driven the purchasing prices down. Um, that's the other thing. That's just really weird. Um, you know, anyone can make a movie now. Um, it's, it's the best of times. It's the worst of times because anyone can go buy, can go get a camera for like a thousand dollars or less, maybe even 500 bucks, a good, like, you know, a, like a DSLR that has a cinematic look to it and they can go make a movie for almost nothing. I like, can go make a movie for, I don't know someone made a movie for like 800 bucks once and i was like is it any good i don't know but they did they did it you know you can do it but at the same time now that everyone's doing it it's really crowding the marketplace and it's making it difficult for the ones that are actually of quality to stand out um you know to really be something that people are willing to pay money for because you know i know a lot of people that make these movies for like thirty fifty thousand dollars they go to sundance they get a lot of acclaim um, but a lot of them don't end up getting deals that are, um, well, this year was a weird year because a lot of people got sales, um, for a lot more money than they have. But the last previous couple of years, the sales were, there were no advances. So they didn't recoup any of their budget up front. And it was all, they were all relying on, on money to come in. I had a friend of mine, he, uh, his movie won the next award at Sundance, then the Cassavetes award. And he got a letter from his distributor saying, Oh, I'm sorry. We've declared bankruptcy. We can't pay you anything. <laughs> and it was just like, are you kidding me? Like, talk about a squandered opportunity and a screwed up situation. It's definitely a different market. I know when we put Live Animals out in 2009, it was, you know, heavily involving physical copies of the movie being sold. Yeah, you know, that's Walmart, largely going away. Uh, I mean, I remember like Best Buy bought like something like fifteen or 20,000, mm-hmm. not Best Buy, but Blockbuster bought like fifteen or 20,000 copies. But like we bought, like there were a bunch that, that of, of our movies that went to certain retailers, and they they couldn't move them off the shelves, so they had to return a certain number of them. So there's like a bunch of discs yeah. sitting in in a warehouse somewhere that still have to be sold. You know, Best Buy returned some. I remember that. Yeah. Um, and then you know we're going through the process now of signing all the paperwork on Girl and Woods, and it's a completely different market. Like I'm, I've actually got a call scheduled tomorrow to talk to the distributor about like, okay, what does all this mean? what are you seeing like is it more more digital based stuff oh yeah it's a lot physical? more digital based yeah it's weird because we're in a very odd an odd transition period in the industry where streaming is clearly the future but no one has really figured out an equitable share for streaming yet so like everyone's kind of like kind of taking these shitty deals because that's all they're really getting and they end up kind of making way less than they should even through legitimate streaming stuff online what i've noticed actually dvd is still kicking somewhere some parts of the world i guess still their main um monetary expenditure is the dvd so you 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 still make dvds but blu-ray is not as you know it's not guaranteed with every sale anymore you know whereas like i feel like I love movies, man. I'm like, I'm a total cinephile uh, and I love 
the better the the format, the you know, the better for me. Like I love Blu-ray and I love the quality that it gives, and I love recreating movies in my home the way you know as close as I can to like a big theater, you know. So I've got like a big projection screen and stuff. So like I really love that stuff, but I realize like I'm not an average person, and that an average person these days is now watching my movie on their cell phone or their iPad. Oh no, it, don't say that. And you cringe. You, you you have to cringe at it, you know. But like, it, it sounds it's so terrible. Well, like, you're it, robbing it, it yourself is. of an experience. My producer was talking is, about that the other day when yeah. we were looking at the 4K files and stuff, and he goes, "Man, it's a shame that." 90% of the people that watch this are going to have a Blu-ray player or something hooked up with like SD cables into a color bad monitor. Oh yeah. The, oh yeah. The sound's going to be all, nobody will ever see it the way it's supposed to look. Yeah. And I think, you know, in a weird way, watching your movie, watching a movie on the iPhone and the iPad, you know, this is going to sound like total blasphemy, but it's harder to screw up the image on an iPad or an iPhone uh, than it is on a home right. television because there's fewer settings. You know, you can really only change the brightness. Um, you can't change the color. You can't change, um, you know, the the sharpness. You're you're gonna get a certain level of quality, and at least you can bank on that. But at the same time, you go, oh, it's this tiny little screen that fits in the palm of my hand, and it's not like sitting in a giant room with a giant screen. You know? Yeah. But, um, you know, that's the reality that we live in. And I think I'm not saying that filmmakers should go make anything any differently than they would just kind of understand that, like, for a lot of people, how they consume it doesn't matter to them as much as as it does. And I think that the filmmakers and the people that do value it should do whatever they can to preserve those ways of, of viewing movies, like support your theaters, buy your Blu-rays, you know, like do those things if you, if, you know, because they're not going to make it if people don't pay for it. So, Exactly. You know, that's the only way to sort of preserve that legacy. Well, I bought my copy of uh, Sushi Girl on Blu-ray. Oh, well, thank you. The same day I <laughs> bought uh, Skyfall as well. Oh, I, d- I did that too. I just, I had to get that Best Buy sticker on it. <laughs> hey, hold up. I, br- I brought up Skyfall real quick. I was going to ask you, you guys use the song, you use Diamonds Are Forever in the opening credits. Yeah, we did. How did um, you guys finagle that? Was that like a, a nightmare? <laughs> was that pretty easy? Well, okay, no, it was, it was, it was, it wasn't a perfectly easy situation, but it, um, we actually licensed it and they sent us a digital file that was like a compilation of Shirley Basie songs. And I was like, why is Goldfinger on this tape? And, and I realized it was just like a, they had just lazily spit out like a, whatever quality that they, they had, they just sent it over and, and I was listening to it and it wasn't even the right cut of the song. Um, are you serious? Yeah. So if there's two different versions of the song, one's the single cut for the, for the album and the radio play. And then the other, the one that I wanted to use is actually the main title track from the film, uh, which has a, a different intro. We badgered them so much. They went back to Abbey road and they pulled the original eight track, uh, separation masters and they transferred those at uh, 192 kilohertz and sent them to us in just in pieces. And they were like, all right, have fun. <laughs> reassembling the song and so what we found out was that the intro was actually recorded separately and laid on top of the studio cut um which was the which was just the the radio edit essentially it was really cool to hear the different um sections all separated they were it was a live recording 
And, um, and so in these files that we got, you could hear like John Barry counting down and then you're in the woodwind section and you can hear the keyboards coming like distantly, you know, like from, from the other side of the room at the end of it, you could hear like everyone laughing, like, Oh, that was cool. But there's all these really like amazing, amazing little nuggets in like buried in there. There's like a honky tonk piano and there's like a wah wah guitar. And like the way they build all together is like, if you didn't hear it before, like when every time you listen to the song after you've heard it, you go, Oh shit, there it is. It's like, it's buried in there, but it's there. You know, it was really cool. So we got to take this raw material and we created a new 7.1 mix of the song, which Sean was really jazzed about because it was like a, you know, kind of a sort of in the spirit of the movie, you know, taking the old and building it into something new. Dude, that's, that's awesome, man. Look at that. Getting some yeah. bond history while film making a film, man. That's yeah. Right. It was, it was really cool. Um, and the other thing that we did was we actually, um, sort of inadvertently preserved Isaac Hayes walk on by, uh, we had gotten, um, a transfer of, of that from whoever owned the master and it had the opening drum hit cut off. And I was like, Hey, Hey buddy, we paid for this fucking song. Give us everything. You know, we need that opening <laughs> drum hit. He's like, all right, well, I'll run it again, but the tape is starting to scallop, so it's really like it's really fragile, like it was falling apart. And so Ooh. we basically made him do a high, the highest resolution we could. He's like that's 192 kilohertz, 32 bit flow point um, recording uh, off the original master tape. And he's like, you know, like I'm probably not going to run this tape ever again because it's in such bad shape. Like that's it. Like you essentially saved that song. I was like, "Wow, that's that's cool." <laughs> Amazing. Whoa. Yeah, you can buy it. You can buy that that track off the uh, off iTunes on our soundtrack. So it's it's like a lot of people don't know it, and I don't think we pushed it enough. But like the highest resolution available of these songs, you can get off our our, our soundtrack. Yeah, is uh, <laughs> is is that on iTunes right now? Yeah, it's on iTunes. It's been on iTunes for a while. Um, I don't know if you can buy the tracks individually. I think you might have to buy the album to get all the tracks because, like, we did a we did an orchestral score in New York, and uh, and so it's sort of threaded in. Like the the tracks we licensed are threaded in, and it also uh, has uh, the Roxy Music track from the trailer, even though it's not in the movie. Yeah, the only time I've ever tried to license a song, we tried to go through Sony to get an old Hank Williams song, and they wanted like two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Oh, we wanted to originally use a Beatles track. Um, I mean, I knew we weren't going to get it, but it was uh, I had cut a teaser trailer to "She's So Heavy" off Abbey Road, yeah. and uh, love that song. But someone on set was playing it, and I was like, "Oh yeah, no, this is this is the tone I'm going for." And so I cut together a teaser trailer for it was a uh, it was to show at the rap party, and so like I rushed to get a se- uh, just throw together a teaser trailer after we'd finished shooting, and like the weekend after we finished shooting, like I had a teaser trailer ready to show at the at the rap party, and, and it was it had this Beatles song in it. And I was like, I know we're never going to use this, but you know we should at least ask. And so we asked them what it would cost, and they came back with like three hundred thousand dollars. We were like, yeah, that's like the entire budget of our movie, right? <laughs> But I remember we thought, like, I mean, even back, like, in script form, I was like, I want this song over the opening credits. And we thought we could get it for, like, 20 grand. For I don't know why. We yeah, did this. you use a music supervisor? No, no, this was on our uh, see, you gotta you got to use a music suit because they have, rep- they have uh, relationships that can help. Like, we wouldn't have gotten Cream, uh, Cream's Toad if, if we didn't. Like, it's the song that's playing during the uh, the heist. The drum stuff. You could also hear it in like Casino, and uh, yeah. that was something that like we had done a knockoff version of it 
for um, just in case. But because it was taking so long to get the rights, we actually had to get the lawyers on the phone from the band. It was this long, drawn-out thing that we thought wasn't going to happen in the last second it came through. Um, so, and, and I don't think that would have happened if Sean didn't have the relationships that he did. So, you know, a lot of what they say is a lot of Hollywood, success in Hollywood comes through the relationships you forge. So, um, you know, don't discount those when you when you are going to go do something like that. You know, like it, they might tell tell you if you go individually, they might go say, oh, yeah, we want $300,000 for that song. But if you go with someone who's got a friendship with somebody at the agency or at Sony or whatever, and they'll say, oh, yeah, no, we, we could we can do a better deal than that. You know, so there's tricks and stuff that you can that you can do. But that was that's largely how our soundtrack came together. It was through to the hard work of our music supervisor and uh, and then me working with Fritz to do the orchestral score, which is heavily based on John Barry tracks from uh, Modern Majesty's Secret Service and Diamonds Are Forever. So oh, man. I actually used, I actually used Diamonds Are Forever and Imagine Secret Service as temp score, and Fritz is like, are you, are you serious? Like, you're, this is so good. Like, I can't, like, it's going to be really hard for me to live up to this. <laughs> I was like, shut <laughs> up, you can do it. And he made a really beautiful score. Get a little temp love going. Yeah. Oh man, well John John Barry, dude, that's uh Majesty's Secret Service. That's a really that's a really good score. Yeah, well that you can definitely hear the influence on the the synths that we put into Sushi Girl. Like there there was that it's that like late sixties, early analog synth synth score like element that's in that's in that specific it's not so much in diamonds, it's in it's very much like in Honor Majesty's Secret Service. The track was Gumbold Safe, where he's uh, where Bond is sneaking into the, the lawyer's office and he's um, copying the documents. You know, they remember that they they had like the crane deliver the copy machine. Yeah. Also unlock the safe. It's like what a convenient piece of machinery to have. <laughs> but uh, I was like, Fritz, we need to do something like this. This is this is what it should sound like. And he's like, he went mad trying to come up with something that would work. And he, I think he pulled it off brilliantly, though. Yeah, the music was really good. Yeah, he, he, did, he did a good job. Yeah, I think we won an award at Fantasia for best soundtrack. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. All right. Well, nice, man. Well, dude, is there is there anything else you wanted to close out with? Is there anything you wanted to say that we didn't get to? Or well, I've got a couple things I'm working on. He co-wrote another script of mine uh, that was a semi-finalist in the Academy Nickel competition this past year, and the Austin Film Festival screenwriting competition is called Stanley Kubrick's Moonshot Odyssey. It's a obviously fictional account of Stanley Kubrick faking the moon landing in 1969. Oh, nice. Um, but it's like the only, like there's a couple other projects that have like similar kind of angles, but it is the only movie that has Stanley Kubrick as the main character. And it's the only one that's told from Stanley's point of view. So um, I'm working on that and like getting that set up at a couple different places. Um, and you that know, sounds like a I'll, lot of fun, man. That sounds like a, it's a lot of work. I mean, I've been working on it for four years now. Yeah, no, it's a lot of fun. It's it's more of like an obsession than anything else. Like I keep coming back to it, and I keep like looking at the script and going like, oh no, no, this could be better here. You know, like oh, just let me let me do some revisions here, and um, and it's a really you know, it's the best thing I've ever written. It's been getting really good feedback. Um, so we're we're right now we're targeting a few different places that I think would be really receptive to a movie like that. It's definitely not a cheap film. Um, but in the grand scheme of things, it's not a big budget movie, but it's, it's definitely something that has to be, it has to have a certain amount of, of money behind it to do it right. Uh, otherwise it's kind of like, 
Why I don't do know. It? I wouldn't. I don't know if I'd want to do it. Yeah, you wouldn't want to compromise it that way. Right. Um, but so um, Dan Murphy, uh, he co-wrote that with me, and he wrote another script um, that we. He basically wrote this script. And like he says, he rewrote it in six days, and then another time he told me he wrote it in three days. So it was, it was a really quick, <laughs> three really six quick days. script he wrote. Yeah, that uh, called the Hard Count, and that's about uh, two Reno cocktail waitresses that go toe to toe with like a vicious uh, mafia killer. They've accidentally killed uh, an abusive husband, and um, and they pay him to clean up the body. And uh, turns out that the that the corpse had. Uh, drained the bank account that they were going to they had all the money saved up in and uh and so this guy goes after them instead um so it's this female driven old school film noirish kind of movie and um we're supposed to be uh making that later this year along with mope i, I currently have that this uh, set up at uh, entertainment one as well so that's another one to look out for i'm working on another one called the plastic jungle I'm working on that script right now i was actually working on it when you called um, but that one's kind of like a, a cross between uh, Blowout and Eyes Wide Shut. Oh, like wow. A, oh, cool. Yeah, it's like a, a paparazzo. Basically, he discovers this conspiracy plot. Um, a major star is killed in a car crash. And the religious cult that perpetrated the murder uh, comes after him to shut him up. I, dude, I'm a so, big fan of Blowout. I, man, I love that. Oh, Blowout's great, yeah. I love that. Um, yeah, and it's also so it's it's, it's weird because blowout blowout is a quasi remake of blow up. So this is kind of like going back to blow up a little bit because it's about a photographer. Yeah, I'm all about you know honoring the lineage of Hollywood <laughs> or independent film. Yeah. But yeah, it's uh it's it's another fun project. I'm you know just banging out the script right now, so I don't know when that'll be on the books. But it's it's definitely something like. I'm hoping to reunite with Mark Hamill on and maybe maybe get him to play like a crazy deranged version of himself. <laughs> I could see uh see some more crazy Luke Skywalker. Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, if he's got time, you know, between shooting these giant space movies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he well, kinda, he kind of blew up here a little bit. If his part's uh, not any bigger than the last one. It... <laughs> well, did you see, I mean, you obviously you've all seen it and I don't want to, you oh, know, yeah. Oh, yeah, spoil it for times. the audience, but we were all like best cameo ever, right? <laughs> Most Even emotional so, turnaround of all time. Yeah, someone someone on Twitter asked him and said, "What did you feel when you read the script and you and you came to the end and and saw that your character had no lines?" And he responded, "I was speechless." <laughs> <laughs> it's a funny guy. Oh man, that's good. Yeah. Oh, comedy. Yeah, Ooh. but so we're hoping that the. That the next one will be will be a bigger part, so I'm sure it will be. He's supposed to be like the next Yoda, right? Like I don't know. I don't, you know yes, they they're well. talking about even Harrison Ford coming back, so who knows? With you know, I don't know how that's gonna happen. But. Yeah, with Ryan Johnson <laughs> and everything, and yeah. who knows what that guy's gonna do? He's yeah, well, I mean, look, into... I think he's got a good he's got a good body of work to pull from, and I think he's oh, um, absolutely. Yeah, I'm I'm excited. I actually think I'm I'm more excited about his, you know, his movie than JJ's. I think I think he's got uh, yeah. the ability to really take it somewhere interesting. If if powers that be let him, you know, I I obviously like that's what's so weird about Star Wars now is it's not this little thing that it's not the scrappy, you know, rebel movie anymore. It's the big franchise film. So It's the big Disney you know, wheelhouse. Yeah, yeah, and they're really protective over that stuff, so you got to wonder if they're going to 
you know, be a little risky with it. And, and if we can get another empire out of them. Well, I think if anybody can do it, Ryan Johnson could. Yeah, I agree. Man, Brick, well, I thought that was, man, that was so funny. Oh, yeah, love Brick. Oh, that killed me. And, of course, the end's a little bit of a downer, but, you know. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> but just, like, doing that story in that setting was just, like, inherently, you know. Oh, oh it was just great. A really interesting thing, yeah. I, I totally love that. That really made me pay attention to uh, Mr. Jo- Joseph Gordon-Levitt from there on out, too. Totally, for sure, yeah. I mean, I had seen him on Third Rock from the Sun, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'd seen him as, like, a you know, a kid uh, comedic actor. Yeah. And then here he is, is like coming into this role, and it's like, oh wow, man, you you got a lot to offer there. Yeah, yeah. Speaking about uh, you know weird connections, uh, blowout, uh, John Lithgow, uh, Third Rock from the Sun, like what a what a what a weird change of roles from for that. You know, like he goes from playing this crazy killer to this well crazy alien, like the alien <laughs> father figure. <laughs> yeah, I think my favorite my favorite crazy John Lithgow though is uh, Cliffhanger. I he oh, goes yeah. so over the top in that movie. It just oh, it's like it's beautiful. It's like Alan Rickman in yeah. uh, Die Hard. <laughs> yeah, only to the oh, next Alan level. Rickman. Oh yeah, it's a what a what a crappy year it's been for celebrity deaths, right? Yeah, yeah. It it's yeah. yeah, it's been a little rough, man. We've been I feel like we've been losing them really quick here lately. Just yeah, like one right after the it's other, dropping like flies. And weird, weirdly enough, like it's like. Bowie dies at 69 and then Rickman dies like the next week at 69 from the same thing. You know, it's like getting older, you know, you start losing the people that you grew up with and admiring and it kind of sucks. Yeah. I thought about that the other day. I was like, you know, at this certain point we're kind of just like waiting for our heroes to pass, you know? And like, it's like, you know, that that moment's going to happen. It's just the question of when. I mean, I keep Uh. holding out for another John Carpenter film, man. Like, give me another film, dude. Come on. (laughs) He's he's but he's one that's like he's like too tough to die. He's you know he's like (laughs) one of those guys like it's like Clint Eastwood like you can't kill that guy. (laughs) Clint Eastwood is immortal. He's the man. (laughs) He's really the Highlander. Yeah right. Uh, Or Harry Dean Stanton for that matter. Like that guy is like oh man. People people waiting for him to drop for like twenty years. You know, and it's like it's not gonna happen. Yeah, it's gonna watch that. I say that, and now it's like, oh, next week. Oh, I hope not. <laughs> what, what was that? <laughs> well, that I heard a comedian one time say that, like, after a nuclear war, there'll be cockroaches and Keith Richards. <laughs> that's that's a good one. <laughs> I've heard that one. I just remember we went to see. I went to see Shine Shine a Light with some of my friends um, when it came out in IMAX, and I just remember like just being like so tickled by the close-ups of Keith Richards face because he looked exactly like the grandfather from the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Man, those guys still rock out though, man. Yeah. They still get, I know that's, that's, that's the craziest thing. Like that they're still going like who'd have thought like that the Rolling Stones would still be performing live. I thought I, I went to a Rolling Stones concert in 1997 when I was back in high school. And I said to myself, I said, you got to go to this concert because who knows when, like, they'll probably never play a concert ever again. <laughs> who knew 20 years later, they'd still be going. I know. You should go into your fifth saying. one. Hey, man, this may be the last one. It may be the last one. <laughs> yeah, getting older, man. It's, it's, it is rough. I know. And we're not that old, you know, like I still feel like I still I kind of feel like I'm I'm like 18, you know, like and then in a lot of ways you go, oh, shit, like 
no, I can't do that anymore. Like, <laughs> I'm 34. <laughs> like, my body won't do that. <laughs> like I tried to make a movie. I did a short for, uh, you can see it on my website, actually, uh, saxtoncinema.com. I have a short that I did as a pitch for a new Halloween movie. And, um, and I, I did this thing with like no money and just with a bunch of friends. And it was like me and a friend I got to help me produce it. And we were doing everything. And like, we shot it in two days and the second day was mostly like most of the time was spent wrapping. And because we were the only two people, we were like cleaning up this house and like wrapping cables and packing shit up. It took like six hours just to wrap, <laughs> wrap out occasion and it was like eight in the morning like and i like, hadn't slept and i'm just going like oh my god i can't do this <laughs> like i can't do this forever like this is not the way i remember yeah. when i used to do this and can function now i can't function yeah it was like i tomorrow is totally screwed i gotta i just i gotta sleep all day tomorrow you know it's just you can't you can't push it like that anymore but it looked good that's all i i'd say at the end of the day is like you know at least i'm proud of the footage that's that's the thing, you know, going back, you know, to our earlier argument, like people kind of like, what do they expect us to do that, you know, for the rest of our lives? Like, because that's at a certain point, the only way people are going to be able to make movies to be able to afford to make movies if nobody pays for them, you know, like it's, it's going to be a more of a hobby than it is a profession. Exactly. That's so well put. And you're not going to get the quality that you used to, you know, and, and the engaging stories because yeah. people aren't going to want to spend the time and money to, to to do it right. And you know the sad thing is is that they'll, they'll just bitch and go, "Man, they didn't put any effort into this." Exactly. Cuz it's never anyone's fault. Like that's the thing. As I think it's a kind of a weird outgrowth of, of a society that doesn't is sort of largely refusing to take personal responsibility for problems. Uh, I don't want to start a shitstorm or anything, but like the whole diversity problem, I think a lot of people don't understand how much that is actually related to the audience. It's not just because Hollywood is run by old white, which old white rich men, you know, it, yeah, that's a problem. That's part of the problem. But like the fact that we don't see or celebrate more movies by and for women and that we don't see more movies by and for uh, minorities is largely because people aren't paying for them. I've been casting a movie and I basically was told it's a fe the female driven thriller. And I was literally told point blank the, the women don't mean anything. Let's focus on casting the men. I heard the same and, thing. And, and it blew my fucking mind. Like, Are you I was serious? Like, that you seems serious? like that. that's the kind of like you want a woman in that role. Yeah, no. They, like it's the thing like they particularly this the way this this situation arose is because we're what we're doing is a, a foreign presale uh, situation where it's a negative pickup where they agree to pay a certain amount of money based on a certain level name. In a certain role, you know, I had this really great opportunity for this movie to, to be headlined by some really kick-ass women that are really, I thought, like really leading the the new wave of feminism, essentially, um, where, you know, you get these these girls who are, are, are tough, independent people that don't take shit. You know, I essentially got smacked down and said, no, we need to focus on the guys because the women don't make they don't bring in the money. And the reason why that is is because the audiences don't pay for it. And that's why the people who are running the businesses don't want to focus on it because they want to make their margins better. So they want us to focus on the men, the white name men. Because you'll, you'll, you'll also – this happens if you want to cast uh, you know, an African-American in your movie. They'll be like, well, they don't really do well foreign because now foreign box office is so important because no one pays for movies domestically anymore. You know, it's just – it's crazy. 
you have to look at it as an ecosystem. It's not just, you know, oh, someone is out off in a room making something for me to enjoy. It's I I am a part of, of this world and I have to choose to support it or I'm going to destroy it. That's really insane because, you know, you do look at like I know everything going on with the Oscars right now and yeah. all the controversy that that's starting. Well, that's a little that that it's a little different because it's the it's the academy and the academy is a microcosm of the industry. It's it, that is it's not I'm not saying it's a separate problem, but it's it's a little more complex than than what than what the business side of it is. Yeah, I do. I do feel like if in terms of the business side, if we had been if we give like minorities and stuff more roles, if we you know if we allow that to happen. You know, well, we wouldn't have the problem that crazy, we're having right now. But what's crazy is that there are entire divisions of studios that are like focus on what they call urban films. Like uh, the studies have been done that the Latino audiences are are huge. Like you know, Latino demographics will pay a bunch of money to go see movies in the theater, whereas other demographics might not. You know, movies cater to them. Yeah, but in a lot like of Fast and the Furious, and well, I was I was, yeah, I was in well, a meeting once and. Has, the guy actually said, "Could you write a possession movie? Because Hispanics love them." Yeah, right. Like that's that's the thing. Like it's like it's offensive, <laughs> yeah, them, but at the know, same they... time, like they're literally just zeroing in on, on what they see works as a financial model. Right. So, like, really, yeah, like you can't really fault a business for like an, an industry as a whole for basically following the money because that's that's their job. Their job is to make money because the the industry the 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 audience is only supporting certain things in certain ways that we don't get, you know, that, that we feel like there's a problem. And the problem is really like reflective of society. A large problem is, is that most Americans these days don't want to read subtitles. They don't have patience to read subtitles. And so yeah, I, that kind of hinders, instead of getting a foreign movie released domestically and making a, a you know, making a bunch of money off of a potential audience here, they don't get, release it. They decide to remake it. Yeah, like I feel like there's no patience for subtitles domestically, you know. Whereas, I mean, I guess other no, you you do have a point with that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's really funny to see Sushi Girl dubbed in Russian, but it's it's like a whole other thing. (laughs) Oh man, yeah, I would I would love to see that in Russian. There's a trailer online somewhere, and um, it's really funny because it sounds like all of the guys are voiced by the same one Russian dude. That's the way our, our our one of our movies was in Russia. It was like the same dude just did all the voices. Yeah, they really they really don't. I don't think they don't you know, try. Like, they don't they don't try very hard. Yeah, uh, it's not like the Germans where everything has to be perfect or they won't take your movie through QC. It's ridiculous. Yeah, or uh, France or Japan. Like they all have really high standards and they do things like really like meticulously. But Russia, it's like fair game, whatever. Just throw it out there. Russia, like their deliverable list was just send us a DVD. Yeah, and then there's the other, the Swedish DVD that says 100% Tarantino style and blue letters on the top, and you go, who's who's running this this marketing division? Where it's like it just looks like a cheap product now, like it looks like it almost looks like a bootleg, but it's an official release. It's very Uh bizarre. Now, when Sushi Girl came out, I did man, I I read a lot of reviews when the movie first hit, even before I saw it, Mm -hmm. that were just immediately comparing it. Oh, this is this is like Tarantino. This is like mm-hmm. you know, this is this, this is that. Did you feel like they were missing the point by like? Yeah, I quite think they a bit. were because 
Tarantino does this thing where he basically takes pieces of other movies and he puts them together and makes them his own and everyone's okay with it. But when anyone else does it, they get compared to Tarantino. I mean, it's not like, you know, yeah, the gangster movie meets 12 Angry Men. This is not the first. Tarantino didn't invent that. No, totally. And it it was really weird because uh, someone said, like, uh, they were reading the synopsis for Hateful Eight and and it was like a girl is in the mix. And they go, hmm, this sounds familiar. <laughs> it, it's it was frustrating. I've been doing that forever. You know, I like to reference other movies. Um, I think it's a it's a sign of respect. I think the movie works without the references, but the references are part of what make makes it all extra fun. Well, yeah, I think that's how like you educate the next generation, right? You put that yeah. shot in there, and then the, when they go back and they see that film, they're like, oh my gosh, hey, this guy was doing this with that shot. and Yeah. You know, it helps, like, um, I don't know. But at the same time, like, I don't, there's not a single shot in Sushi Girl that directly rips off another shot from another movie. If you look at it, it's not like I just took the, I just stole the idea. Um, whereas there are a lot of video essays that, can, that, show comparisons of Tarantino's shots to shots from uh, a, a lot of movies that he's basically admitted to borrowing from. Um, and it's kind of shocking you see them side by side, like how much like compositionally they are cribs. Uh, whereas, you know, the, th- the worst you could say about Sushi Girl is that it has a Tarantino-esque cast. It's about five guys arguing in a room about over diamonds um, and Sonny Chiba's in it. Like that's that's about where the Tarantino ends, you know what I mean? Okay. Outside of like sort of like the general seventies vibe of it, you know? It infuriates me to a point that Quentin Tarantino, like he gets a pass from all this, I feel like from critics and you know, other cinemaphiles and film buffs. But then somebody like Brian De Palma, who does something extremely similar, I think, in my book. Mm-hmm. And he just, you know, he gets the shaft and you hear yeah, all this comparison. Well, it's like, well, come yeah. on, man, they're doing the same thing. And what's crazier is that Tarantino got all of this from Brian De Palma. He worships De Palma. Um, he's he's like he's gone on record saying De Palma's like one of his favorite filmmakers of all time, um, if not his favorite. And De Palma's a badass. Yeah, and you know it's it's just funny that people I don't know they just cherry pick what they want and they they kind of you know so what you didn't like it okay fine but there's there's better ways to criticize it than just saying writing it off as a Tarantino knockoff you know it's like well that way there's so much more hard yeah exactly because there's so much else in it like I'm really kind of pissed that like not more people catch my Robocop references you know (laughs) I'd buy that for a dollar exactly (laughs) that's in our show open you know and there's a lot of Fincher in there too there's there's a lot of Kubrick in there you know like it's it's not it's not like I'm just drawing from the Tarantino well I'm drawing from the well of all of the artists that have basically contributed to my voice you know what what I am about as a filmmaker um you know and I think especially starting out I think it's it's a good thing for filmmakers to I'm not going to say like out and out emulate these guys um or their heroes but you know I think it's definitely a big part of figuring it out um well, also, too, like, remember, with, you know, the movies you see as you grow up, yeah, the ones that, you, you know, you love, you've seen over and over, you can't help but letting some of that come out. Exactly. In the way I you see a, the movie looking. Yeah. I, I made a sh- uh, short college, and I did this, like, matching zoom in on a copy, a photocopier, and a matching zoom in on this guy staring at the photocopier, and I, and I you know, cut them together over, you know, it was, like, it was a Lou Reed song. Uh, it, was, it was Velvet Underground song, and um, and I 
didn't even realize I had ripped off Taxi Driver until I saw Taxi Driver again like several months later after we had finished this short. And I was like, holy shit, like that clearly affected me and it clearly stuck with me. And I didn't consciously, it didn't consciously come out. It was just something that it felt like this is how I want to tell this story. And I, I think, you know, like it's part of cinema grammar, right. you know, like you, you just, you have to know how to use the language. And, and then there has to be a difference between using the language and, and, and copying someone else's ideas because there's a lot of stuff, and this goes back to the Tarantino thing, where he literally copies someone's shots and he'll get away with it. But when someone tries to, you know, use the idea of the shot in a different context, they get derided as a Tarantino knockoff. You know, it's like it's it's like I wasn't shooting this thing, a, a, a zoom in to a, uh, a bubbling glass of Alka-Seltzer. It was a photocopier, and it said something completely different about that character. But at the same time, like, I could see the reference. Whereas, like, in Kill Bill, you have, like, a literal overt cribbing of Lady Snowblood. You know, there's a difference. There's a difference. But somehow, one is cool and the other isn't because someone's a tastemaker and someone else is an unknown filmmaker. I also think, I, I, this is probably controversial to say Mr. about Mr. Tarantino, I think people are a little afraid to criticize him. Oh, I, I agree now, especially since he's gotten like two Oscars or whatever. Yeah, I think um, I think a lot of times people will see one of his movies and just say, "Oh, it's great," without really wanting to criticize it. Yeah, and I and I feel like you can draw a a, a very clear line of delineation between early Tarantino and late Tarantino, oh, and yeah. that's right after Jackie Brown. And I exactly. feel like yes. right after. after oh my God, you said it, yeah. sir. Yeah, I think it's his most mature movie, actually, and it's because he didn't write the material. And and so I think, you know, he was on a trajectory with that movie to do something a lot more interesting than just making, like, you know, basically, essentially what I feel Tarantino is doing these days is playing with his toys. And I, I really loved, I really did love Inglorious Bastards. I wasn't as in love with Django, and Hateful Eight, I was not that enthusiastic about at the end of the day. Um, it has a lot of really good things to say about uh, race relations, but at the same time, like I felt like it was kind of like the Emperor's New Clothes. Like people were raving about it, and I was like, "Oh, it's kind of, I don't know, guys. It's just not. It's not that good." To me, it just seems like he's trying really hard to make what he perceives as a Tarantino film. Yeah, it's 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 because it's like all it's, it's a mis it's a mishmash of everything he loved as a kid and it's, now he's got the clout to do whatever he wants and he's so he's like, "Oh, yeah, well, I'm going to go make a snowbound western on 70 millimeter, and no one's going to say shit about it." You know, it's like cool, but you watch it and as much as he trumpets the whole 70 millimeter, the ultra panavision ultra wide frame lets me do things with blocking like I watched it in 70 millimeter and I still I was just like you know like all this extra blocking that you're doing doesn't really matter when your depth of field is so thin that you can't see anything behind the actors anyway you know it's like it's it, it's if you're going to do that use deep focus you know don't like hide things on purpose if you want to play with the blocking in the background you know so it was it's just I don't know like there's I feel like I'm going down a, a, a road that is going to open up a whole other argument, and I, I don't know if we have time for that. <laughs> I, but, I have that. I have that fear every time I bring up the. Yeah. I think Tarantino is making Tarantino esque, like almost yeah. spoofs of his movie. Like he said, I think he said that about Kill Bill. Like Kill Bill is like a Tarantino movie that exists within a Tarantino movie, 
And it's like, it's like, it's a movie that his characters in like Pulp Fiction would go watch or something like that, which is like a weird, it's a cool concept, but like, when does that end? And when you go back to making like real movies and not just like these pastiche fests, right? you know, and I look, and I love, I, I enjoy watching them, you know, every time he makes a movie, it's an opportunity for it to be really wowed by the, the form of cinema because he very versed in, in his, in his movie uh, grammar and he knows how to tell a story. And I think he's been getting a lot better at telling stories visually than he was when he was first starting out. But at the same time, like, you're right. Like I, I, I feel like it's, it's too much about him. Like to the extent now that he's narrating his own movies, you hear his voice in the second half of, of hateful eight and you go, wait, wait what? Like, w- why, why wouldn't you get like someone <laughs> badass like James Earl Jones to voice this or something? You know what I mean? Like why, oh, wow. why, why you like, why did you insert yourself into your movie again? I haven't seen At least in Django. I didn't know that. Oh yeah. No, it's definitely him. Um, at least he had the wherewithal to blow himself up in, in Django. That was that was humorous. <laughs> Man, some of his sequences, like just that beginning sequence in Inglorious Bastards. Oh, it's great. Yeah, yeah, it's so well done. I mean, yeah, and like he's one of the few people that can get away with like that verbose of a of a of a section. And it, it, if you watch oh, that, yeah. it's like the first like 15, 20 minutes of the movie or something like that. It's like such a long scene, but it's so engrossing. I mean, that's, it's really, it's a masterwork in that regard. Really able to bring that tension in quick. Oh, totally. But I didn't get that much out of hateful eight, you know, like I felt like it was kind of like he was plodding back through well-worn territory at this point, And I, I kind of wanted something more new from him. Yeah, me too. I want to see another Pulp Fiction out of him. Yeah, yeah, I, I could be down for I that. I'll take another Jackie Brown. Oh, dude. Yeah, well, another, yeah I mean, another Jackie Brown too. Jackie yeah, Brown, I like think that's that that's totally... a once in a lifetime. That's like that's his raging bull taxi driver. I think that was the yeah. But you know, I think, I think that he, was the film. I, you know, he critics skewered him for it, and audiences stayed away. It's such a shame because I feel like if he had more support on that movie. I think we would be seeing some different output from him. I think we we might be even getting some 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 better movies out of him lately. I agree. Um, I think that movie broke his heart a little bit. Yeah, I think it did too. Hey, Kern, I know we've talked to you forever, man. I know you got to go here pretty soon. I just wanted to ask you. You brought up this tension, and I mean, I totally forgot to ask, but I wanted to talk to you about your movie's called Sushi Girl. She's there in the beginning. She's she's the bookend. She's there at the end. Tony Todd, he's busting down on the table. When we have people interacting mm-hmm. on the table, we cut, we cut into her close-ups, and you get to see her reaction shots for a moment. How hard, when, when you were cutting, how hard was that to know when to involve her in the movie, when to take her out? It was a delicate balance, because besides the Tarantino thing, the reaction to the movie, I'm, I was kind of disappointed that more people didn't pick up on the sort of the feminist nature of the movie. What? Um, Are you serious? Yeah, like some woman came up to me at Fantasia and said, I saw this movie, I brought my mo- my daughter to see this movie, and I wanted to thank you for, for making this movie. And I was like, wow, like, cool, like, people kind of, people are getting what I'm, what I'm communicating, and that the idea that the only woman in the movie is the one that, like, you literally are sort of trained to ignore the whole time, and, and she's the one that you should have been paying attention to. And I feel like a lot of people don't, understand that you know i feel like a lot of people kind of maybe wrote it off as being misogynist but you know like you can't control that like you can only make your art the way you you know the way you see it and you know look if i could easily say you know was it the akira kurosawa if i could say that i wouldn't have made the movie 
you have to be confident that what you're putting out in the universe is, is what you want to say and how you want your, for better, lack of a better word, legacy to be. You know, if people harmonize with it, that's, that's great. If they don't, I think, you know, I, I was really discouraged by that at first, but now having been through the gauntlet, I, I have a more pragmatic view of it. And I, and I feel like it's not really my fault that they didn't pick up on it. You know, like I think that the movie works clearly it works for a lot of other people who, you know, I've gotten feedback from um, like that woman at Fantasia. So I know that, that I'm doing something right. Putting those close-ups in was a really, it was a really tedious thing because I wanted to make sure that the audience kind of, was was with the gangsters and not with her at a certain point because they I wanted I wanted the audience to be distracted by the melodrama that was happening. Um, there were conversations about how to do it originally, and I think um, one of the original concepts was to do the movie more from her perspective. It was a big argument, and it would have been a completely different movie, and I think it would have been a more obvious movie also. You know, the, I, I really wanted to work with the subversion aspect of of, of that character. And make the audience kind of totally forget that she was even a part of the story until the right moment. Yeah, um, I thought that was really good how you brought her in on those sound cues and like on those moments where she she just she gets so startled. You know, I she almost breaks so character. Yeah, yeah, right. Like she's yeah. told you got to lay there, and you if somebody slams their fist right beside your head, yeah, you're gonna blink. Yeah, we did. That was it was fun because, because, you know, like totally ruining it, though, the you know, that was like all those inserts were shot together. And it was me and Destin basically just verbally harassing Courtney and like (laughs) having on the table while she was in close up. And uh, it was a closed set. It was like a a small skeleton crew day. And we just you know we shot those inserts and put them into the film like that. And they blend in seamlessly. But it was um, I'd like everyone to think that this we were there in real time experiencing it the way she's experiencing it you know like she's really rattled by what you know duke's unleashing of anger because there's this it's this it's uh sort of the hitchcockian thing where it's like there's a time bomb under the table and you know you know it's going to go off you just don't know when we tried a few different like i had more in at one point and i took them out because i knew that it was drawing too much attention to her at, at, at certain critical moments when we're supposed to be with I, with Noah, essentially, like I, I, I really wanted um, to paint Noah as the main character, as a red herring, essentially, um, so that you know, obviously, when spoiler alert, when he dies, people are are kind of like freaking out, like, oh no, what do we do now? Like, you know, you know, like we, this was this was our view, our window into this world, but he's really not. It's really her. Um, at the end of the day, it's just she was so underestimated that nobody saw it coming. It's a first feature, and I'm really happy with it, and I'm ready to to get another couple under my belt and see what else I can bring to the table as an artist. We can't wait to see it. We're going to wrap this up now. Oh, dude, cool. where can people find out more about you and follow you on the internet? Uh, I have a website now, SaxtonCinema.com. Um, I have a Facebook page that's like dedicated to my filmmaking uh, called Kern Saxton Filmmaker. Um, and the, I mean, if I don't know you, please go like the directing page. Cause I'm probably not going to add you on Facebook if I don't know you, um, <laughs> makes sense, makes sense. Or, or if we don't have a lot of mutual, mutual friends, um, I, you know, it'll probably just stick in my inbox. Um, because I'm not sure, you know, you never know who, 
who is real and who is fake on that thing. Um, right. And then I have a Twitter. Well, hey, dude, look, we usually close the show out with a piece of the soundtrack, um, you know, for, for people to listen to and get a taste uh-huh. of the film and everything. So since you're our guest tonight, and we're probably going to play a track from Sushi Girl, what, what, do you, what do you think we should play? What would be a good track to represent your film? Oh, man, well, this is a tough one because I've got so many um, good tracks from Fritz, and I also have those nuggets from, like, uh, the Bond score and uh, Isaac Hayes. Well, you know what? We can know. we can play two tracks if you, if you need to, man. Okay, we can make it yeah, easier right. for you if you have to. We have to. No, we do have well, a story of the Isaac Hayes save. Yeah, we do. Yes, you do. I mean, I think that would be good, but it is. You have it's an eleven minute song. <laughs> we we are in Memphis, so you know Isaac Hayes does pay. You know, he's he's a little more special to us than in most uh, places of the United States of America. How about, why don't you guys play a track from Fritz and then the Isaac Hayes song? How about that? All right, okay. Which 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 track should we are we playing from Fritz? Um, tough one. I think a celebration is, is pretty good. It's the, uh, yeah, it's the one where they're all sitting around the dinner table uh, for the first time talking. And it builds to this very fluid and beautiful but dark and deadly kind of piece. And I think that really kind of sums up the movie uh, as a whole. And then, of course, the Isaac Hayes song, which is very, uh, I think, a good bookend to Diamonds Are Forever. So, yeah, I think those are good, too. Good, too, to send off on. All right. All right. We're going to close out the show with that tonight. Uh, guys, look, you can get the soundtrack on iTunes. Strongly res- uh, recommend it. We're going to play you a little sample here in just a second. And Sushi Girl is out on Blu-ray and DVD. If you guys haven't seen it yet, get it on Amazon. It's uh, it's on BestBuy.com. Listen to it in 7.1 in all its glory. <laughs> right there, Kern? Yeah, do it. That's good. Yeah, man. Hey, dude, thank you so much for coming on the show tonight, man. We really appreciate thank it. Thank you, guys. Yeah, man. Yeah, it's fun talking so to much. you.
So please walk on by Oh mama Make believe you never see the tears of cry So I'm begging you to Walk on by Oh yeah Make believe you never see the tears of cry So I'm begging you I'm begging you to walk on by Never see the tears of cry. Oh, there's no dust in my eye. 